Chapter Six of *The Enemies of Books* by William Blades. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six: The Bookworm. There is a sort of busy worm that will the fairest books deform by gnawing holes throughout them, alike through every leaf they go. Yet of its merits naught they know, nor care they aught about them. Their tasteless tooth will tear and taint the poet, patriot, sage, or saint, not sparing wit nor learning. Now if you'd know the reason why, the best of reasons I'll apply. Tis bread to the poor vermin. Of pepper, snuff, or bacca smoke, and Russia calf they make a joke. Yet why should sons of science these puny, rankling reptiles dread? Tis but to let their books be read, and bid the worms defiance. J. Doriston A most destructive enemy of books has been the bookworm. I say has been, because fortunately his ravages in all civilized countries have been greatly restricted during the last fifty years. This is due partly to the increased reverence for antiquity which has been universally developed, more still to the feeling of cupidity which has caused all owners to take care of volumes which year by year have become more valuable and to some considerable extent due to the falling off in the production of edible books the monks who were the chief makers as well as the custodians of books through the long ages we call dark because so little is known of them had no fear of the bookworm before their eyes for ravenous as he is and was he loves not parchment and at that time paper was not whether at a still earlier period he attacked the papyrus the paper of the egyptians i know not probably he did as it was a purely vegetable substance and if so it is quite possible that the worm of to-day in such evil repute with us is the lineal descendant of ravenous ancestors who plagued the sacred priests of on in the time of joseph's pharaoh by destroying their title deeds and their books of science rare things and precious as manuscripts were before the invention of typography are well preserved but when the printing press was invented and paper books were multiplied in the earth when libraries increased and readers were many then familiarity bred contempt books were packed in out-of-the-way places and neglected and the oft-quoted though seldom-seen bookworm became an acknowledged tenant of the library and the mortal enemy of the bibliophile anathemas have been hurled against this pest in nearly every european language old and new and classical scholars of bygone centuries have thrown their spondees and dactyls at him Pierre Petit, in 1683, devoted a long Latin poem to his dispraise, and Parnell's charming ode is well known. Here the poet lament, Pene tu mii passerum catuli, Pene tu mii lesbiam abstulisti. And then, Quid dicam in numeros bene eruditos, Quorum tu monumenta tu labores, isti pessimo ventre devorasti while pettit who was evidently moved by strong personal feelings against the invisum pecus as he calls him 
addresses his little enemy as bestia odax and pestus chartarum but as a portrait commonly precedes a biography the curious reader may wish to be told what this bestia odax who so greatly ruffles the tempers of our eclectics is like here at starting is a serious chameleon-like difficulty for the bookworm offers to us if we are guided by their words as many varieties of size and shape as there are beholders sylvester in his laws of verse with more words than wit described him as a microscopic creature wriggling on the learned page which when discovered stiffens out into the resemblance of a streak of dirt the earliest notice is in micrographia by r hook folio london sixteen sixty five this work which was printed at the expense of the royal society of london is an account of innumerable things examined by the author under the microscope and is most interesting for the frequent accuracy of the author's observations and most amusing for his equally frequent blunders in his account of the bookworm his remarks which are rather long and very minute are absurdly blundering he calls it a small white silver shining worm or moth which i found much conversant among books and papers and is supposed to be that which corrodes and eats holes through the leaves and covers its head appears big and blunt and its body tapers from it towards the tail smaller and smaller being shaped almost like a carrot it has two long horns before which are straight and tapering towards the top curiously ringed or knobbed and bristled much like the marsh weed called horse's tail the hinder part is terminated with three tails in every particular resembling the two longer horns that grow out of the head the legs are scaled and haired this animal probably feeds upon the paper and covers of books and perforates in them several small round holes finding perhaps a convenient nourishment in those husks of hemp and flax which have passed through so many scourings washings dressings and dryings as the parts of old paper necessarily have suffered and indeed when i consider what a heap of sawdust or chips this little creature which is one of the teeth of time conveys into its entrails i cannot choose but remember and admire the excellent contrivance of nature in placing in animals such a fire as is continually nourished and supplied by the materials conveyed into the stomach and fomented by the bellows of the lungs the picture or image which accompanies this description is wonderful to behold certainly our hook fellow of the royal society drew somewhat upon his imagination here having apparently evolved both the engraving and description from his inner consciousness note not so several correspondents have drawn my attention to the fact that hook is evidently describing the lepisma which if not positively injurious is often found in the warm places of old houses especially if a little damp he mistook this for the bookworm End note entomologists even do not appear to have paid much attention to the natural history of the worm kirby speaking of it says the larva of crambus pinguinalis spins a robe which it covers with its own excrement and does no little injury 
Again, I have often observed the caterpillar of a little moth that takes its station in damp old books, and there commits great ravages, and many a black-letter rarity, which in these days of bibliomania would have been valued at its weight in gold, has been snatched by these devastators, etc., etc. As already quoted, Doriston's description is very vague. To him he is in one verse a sort of busy worm, and in another a puny rankling reptile. Hannet, in his work on bookbinding, gives Aglossa pinguinalis as the real name, and Mrs. Gatty, in her parables, christens it Hypothenimus cruditus. The Reverend F. T. Havergal, who many years ago had much trouble with bookworms in the Cathedral Library of Hereford, says they are a kind of death-watch, with a hard outer skin and are dark brown, another sort having white bodies with brown spots on their heads. Mr. Holm, in Notes and Queries for 1870, states that the Anobium Panicium has done considerable injury to the Arabic manuscripts brought from Cairo by Burckhardt, and now in the University Library, Cambridge. Other writers, say Acarus eruditus or Anobium pertinax, are the correct scientific names. Personally, I have come across but few specimens. Nevertheless, from what I have been told by librarians, and judging from analogy, I imagine the following to be about the truth. There are several kinds of caterpillar and grub which eat into books. Those with legs are the larvae of moths. Those without legs, or rather with rudimentary legs, are grubs and turn into beetles. It is not known whether any species of caterpillar or grub can live generation after generation upon books alone but several sorts of wood-borers and others which live upon vegetable refuse will attack paper especially if attracted in the first place by the real wooden boards in which it was the custom of the old bookbinders to clothe their volumes in this belief some country librarians object to opening the library windows lest the enemy should fly in from the neighboring woods and rear a brood of worms any one, indeed, who has seen a hole in a filbert or a piece of wood riddled by dry rot will recognize a similarity of appearance in the channels made by these insect enemies. Among the paper-eating species are, one, the anobium. Of this beetle there are varieties, namely, anobium pertinax, anobium eruditus, and anobium penicium. In the larval state they are grubs, just like those found in nuts, and in this stage they are too much alike to be distinguished from one another. They feed on old dry wood, and often infest bookcases and shelves. They eat the wooden boards of old books, and so pass into the paper, where they make long holes, quite round, except when they work in a slanting direction, when the holes appear to be oblong they will thus pierce through several volumes in succession. Peñote, the well-known bibliographer, having found twenty-seven volumes so pierced in a straight line by one worm, a miracle of gluttony, the story of which for myself I receive cum grano salis, after a certain time the larva changes into a pupa, and then emerges as a small brown beetle. 2. 
oecophora. This larva is similar in size to that of anobium, but can be distinguished at once by having legs. It is a caterpillar, with six legs upon its thorax, and eight sucker-like protuberances on its body, like a silkworm. It changes into a chrysalis, and then assumes its perfect shape as a small brown moth. The species that attacks books is the Oecophora pseudospretella. It loves damp and warmth, and eats any fibrous material. This caterpillar is quite unlike any garden species, and, excepting the legs, is very similar in appearance and size to the anobium. It is about a half-inch long, with a horny head and strong jaws. To printer's ink or writing ink he appears to have no great dislike, though I imagine that the former often disagrees with his health, unless he is very robust, as in books where the print is pierced a majority of the wormholes I have seen are too short in extent to have provided food enough for the development of the grub. But although the ink may be unwholesome, many grubs survive, and eating day and night in silence and darkness work out their destiny, leaving, according to the strength of their constitutions, a longer or shorter tunnel in the volume. In December 1879, Mr. Birdsall, a well-known bookbinder of Northampton, kindly sent me by post a fat little worm which had been found by one of his workmen in an old book while being bound. He bore his journey extremely well, being very lively when turned out. I placed him in a box, in warmth and quiet, with some small fragments of paper from a Boethius printed by Caxton, and a leaf of a seventeenth-century book. He ate a small piece of the leaf, but either from too much fresh air, from unaccustomed liberty, or from a change of food, he gradually weakened and died in about three weeks. I was sorry to lose him, as I wished to verify his name in his perfect state. Mr. Waterhouse, of the entomological department of the British Museum, very kindly examined him before death, and was of the opinion he was Oecophora pseudospretella. In July 1885, Dr. Garnett of the British Museum gave me two worms which had been found in an old Hebrew commentary just received from Athens. They had doubtless had a good shaking on their journey, and one was moribund when I took charge, and joined his defunct kindred in a few days. The other seemed hearty, and lived with me for nearly eighteen months. I treated him as well as I knew how, placed him in a small box, with a choice of three sorts of old paper to eat, and very seldom disturbed him. He evidently resented his confinement, ate very little, moved very little, and changed in appearance very little, even when dead. This Greek worm, filled with Hebrew lore, differed in many respects from any other I have seen. He was longer, thinner, and more delicate-looking than any of his English congeners. He was transparent, like thin ivory, and had a dark line through his body which I took to be his intestinal canal. He resigned his life with extreme procrastination, and died deeply lamented by his keeper, who had long looked forward to his final development. The difficulty of breeding these worms is probably due to their formation. 
when in a state of nature, they can by expansion and contraction of the body, working upon the sides of their holes, push their horny jaws against the opposing mass of paper. But when freed from that restraint, which indeed to them is life, they cannot eat, although surrounded with food, for they have no legs to keep them steady, and their natural leverage is wanting. Considering the numerous old books contained in the British Museum, the library there is wonderfully free from the worm. Mr. Rye, lately the keeper of the printed books there, writes me two or three were discovered in my time, but they were weakly creatures. One, I remember, was conveyed into the Natural History Department, and was taken into custody by Mr. Adam White, who pronounced it to be Anobium pertinax. I never heard of it after. The reader who has not had an opportunity of examining old libraries can have no idea of the dreadful havoc which these pests are capable of making. I have now before me a very fine folio volume, printed on very good unbleached paper, as thick as stout cartridge, in the year 1477, by Peter Schoeffer of Mentz. Unfortunately, after a period of neglect in which it suffered severely from the worm, it was about fifty years ago considered worth a new cover, and so again suffered severely, this time at the hands of the binder. Thus the original state of the boards is unknown, but the damage done to the leaves can be accurately described. The worms have attacked each end. On the first leaf are 212 distinct holes, varying in size from a common pinhole to that which a stout knitting needle would make, say one sixteenth to one twenty-third of an inch. These holes run mostly in lines more or less at right angles with the covers, a very few being channels along the paper affecting three or four sheets only. The varied energy of these little pests is thus represented. On folio one are two hundred twelve holes, on folio eleven are fifty-seven holes, on folio twenty-one are forty-eight holes, on folio thirty-one are thirty-one holes, on folio forty-one are eighteen holes, on folio fifty-one are six holes, on folio sixty-one are four holes, on folio seventy-one are two holes, on folio eighty-one are two holes, on folio eighty-seven is one hole, on folio ninety are no holes. These ninety leaves, being stout, are about the thickness of one inch. The volume has two hundred fifty leaves, and turning to the end we find on the last leaf eighty-one holes, made by a breed of worms not so ravenous. Thus, from the end, on folio one, are eighty-one holes, on folio eleven are forty holes. From the other end, on folio sixty-six is one hole, on folio sixty-nine are no holes. It is curious to notice how the holes, rapidly at first, and then slowly and more slowly, disappear. You trace the same hole, leaf after leaf, until suddenly the size becomes in one leaf reduced to half its normal diameter, and a close examination will show a small abrasion on the paper in the next leaf, exactly where the hole would have come if continued. 
In the book quoted, it is just as if there had been a race. In the first ten leaves, the weak worms are left behind. In the second ten, there are still forty-eight eaters. These are reduced to thirty-one in the third ten, and to only eighteen in the fourth ten. On folio fifty-one, only six worms hold on, and before folio sixty-one, two of them have given in. Before reaching folio seven, it is a neck-and-neck -neck race between two sturdy gourmands, each making a fine large hole, one of them being oval in shape. At folio seventy-one, they are still neck-and-neck, and, neck, and at folio eighty-one the same. At folio eighty-seven, the oval worm gives in, the round one eating three more leaves and partway through the fourth. The leaves of the book are then untouched until we reach the sixty-ninth from the end, upon which is one wormhole. After this they go on multiplying to the end of the book. I have quoted this instance because I have it handy. But many worms eat much longer holes than any in this volume. Some I have seen running quite through a couple of thick volumes, covers and all. In the Schäufer book, the holes are probably the work of Anobium pertinax, because the center is spared and both ends are attacked. Originally, real wooden boards were the covers for this volume, and here, doubtless, the attack was commenced, which was carried through each board into the paper of the book. I well remember my first visit to the Bodleian Library in the year 1858, Dr. Bandinel being then the librarian, he was very kind, and afforded me every facility for examining the fine collection of Caxtons, which was the object of my journey. In looking over a parcel of black-letter fragments, which had been in the drawer for a long time, I came across a small grub, which, without a thought, I threw on the floor and trod underfoot. Soon after I found another, a fat, glossy fellow, so long, which I carefully preserved in a little paper box, intending to observe his habits and development. Seeing Dr. Bandinel near, I asked him to look at my curiosity. Hardly, however, had I turned the wriggling little victim out upon the leather-covered table, when down came the doctor's great thumbnail upon him, and an inch-long smear proved the tomb of all my hopes, while the great bibliographer, wiping his thumb on his coat-sleeve, passed on with the remark, "'Oh, yes, they have black heads sometimes.' That was something to know, another fact for the entomologist, for my little gentleman had a hard, shiny white head, and I had never heard of a black-headed bookworm before or since. Perhaps the great abundance of black-letter books in the Bodleian may account for the variety. At any rate, he was an anobium. I have been unmercifully chaffed for the absurd idea that a paper-eating worm could be kept a prisoner in a paper box. Oh, these critics! Your bookworm is a shy, lazy beast, and takes a day or two to recover his appetite after being evicted. Moreover, he knew his own dignity better than to eat the loaded, glazed, shoddy note-paper in which he was incarcerated. In the case of Caxton's Life of Our Lady, already referred to, not only are there numerous small holes, but some very large channels at the bottom of the pages. This is a most unusual occurrence, and is probably the work of the larva of Dermestes vulpinus, 
a garden beetle which is very voracious and eats any kind of dry ligneous rubbish the scarcity of edible books in the present century has been mentioned one result of the extensive adulteration of modern paper is that the worm will not touch it his instinct forbids him to eat the china clay the bleaches the plaster of paris the sulphate of barites the scores of adulterants now used to mix with the fibre and so far the wise pages of the old literature are in the race against time with the modern rubbish heavily handicapped thanks to the general interest taken in old books nowadays the worm has a hard time of it and but slight chance of that quiet neglect which is necessary to his existence so much greater is the reason why some patient entomologist should while there is the chance take upon himself to study the habits of the creature as sir john lubbock has those of the ant i have now before me some leaves of a book which being waste were used by our economical first printer caxton to make boards by pasting them together whether the old paste was an attraction or whatever the reason may have been the worm when he got in there did not as usual eat straight through everything into the middle of the book but worked his way longitudinally eating great furrows along the leaves without passing out of the binding and so furrowed are these few leaves by long channels that it is difficult to raise one of them without its falling to pieces this is bad enough but we may be very thankful that in these temperate climes we have no enemies such as are found in very hot countries where a whole library books bookshelves tables chairs and all may be destroyed in one night by a countless army of ants our cousins in the united states so fortunate in many things seem very fortunate in this their books are not attacked by the worm at any rate american writers say so true it is that all their black letter comes from europe and having cost many dollars is well looked after but there they have thousands of seventeenth and eighteenth century books in roman type printed in the states on genuine and wholesome paper and the worm is not particular at least in this country about the type he eats through if the paper is good probably therefore the custodians of their old libraries could tell a different tale which makes it all the more amusing to find in the excellent encyclopedia of printing edited and printed by ringwalt at philadelphia not only that the bookworm is a stranger there for personally he is unknown to most of us but that his slightest ravages are looked upon as both curious and rare after quoting dibdin with the addition of a few flights of imagination of his own ringwalt states that this paper-eating moth is supposed to have been introduced into england in hog's leather binding from holland he then ends with what to anyone who has seen the ravages of the worm in hundreds of books must be charming in its native simplicity there is now he states evidently quoting this as a great curiosity there is now in a private library in philadelphia a book perforated by this insect o oh, lucky philadelphians who can boast of possessing the oldest library in the states but must ask leave of a private collector if they wish to see the one wormhole in the whole city
End of chapter 6. Recording by Maria Casper.